evening. We're looking today at the Psalms. Um, we're going through a wee series looking at the Psalms over the evening services. And uh, today we're looking at Psalm 77. So let's hear God's word. Psalm 77. For the director of music, for Jeduthan of Asaph, a psalm. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and I would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated, and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart meditated, and my spirit asked, Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? And then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea. Your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. It's always 3 a.m., isn't it? The house is quiet. You look outside and there's not a light in the street. Everyone's asleep 
except for you. Maybe you had a few unsettled hours before you were jolted awake, and then the realization and the panic and the leaden heaviness hit you. More likely, you haven't slept at all. You know that in three hours or so, you'll have to get up and the grind will begin all over again. And so in the meantime, you endlessly toss and you turn as you reflect on all the what-ifs and the what-nexts and the how-it-might-have-beens. And even the good memories, the thoughts of happier times, they only kind of reinforce your fear of what looks like an empty future. And that's when the really heaving, gut-wrenching pain sets in. But sometimes, of course, you can't cry at all. You're simply numb, overwhelmed by the weight of everything. All you can do is sigh and groan. At 3 a.m., your real self emerges. Your uncensored self with all its fears and vulnerabilities. 3 a.m. is the loneliest time in the whole universe. Let's be honest. We all have those 3 a.m. moments, don't we, in our lives? Maybe you or someone that you love are actually going through them right now. But when you're a person of faith, that kind of brings an added dilemma to whatever the issue is you're dealing with. How do you pray to God when you've run out of words? How do you pray to God when you're questioning his goodness, his efficacy, or let's be blunt, perhaps his very existence? Is faith, after all, a delusion, pie in the sky, a horrible lie? Or maybe you're just angry at God. This isn't what you signed up for. This so-called God has let you down and badly. Somehow, though, you're still clinging on to hope, even if it's by your fingertips. The habits of a lifetime, the witness of the community, can't be dismissed that easily. At some very basic level, a flicker of faith remains. But the difficulty is the gap between your theology and your experience. Relating what you know you should believe to how you actually feel when life throws that sudden curveball at you. We've all felt despair and desperation and grief at times. And we've all had doubts and questions, just like these. But we're good evangelicals, and so we don't really like to say so, either to God or to our fellow brothers and sisters. But thankfully... God knows fine well that we'll go through periods like this. And so in his mercy and his wisdom, he's shown us how we might handle them by including them in his inspired word, the scriptures. Take, for example, this psalm of Asaph's that we've just read. Asaph, it turns out, was a great singer and worship leader back in David and Solomon's day. In fact, he was such an inspired composer of contemporary praise but he was called a prophet. And yet here we see the gifted, spirit-filled Asaph, who was clearly used to draw others closer to God. And what is he doing? 
What's he doing but crying and yelling for God to hear him, refusing to be comforted, questioning God's power and goodness? Asaph, the well-known minister, the in-demand worship leader. That's quite an admission, isn't it? We tend to be selective when it comes to scriptures like these. We don't go through the whole of the Psalms these days. It's more a kind of old favorites or greatest hits kind of approach. The green pastures, the still waters, the praise the Lord's, the alleluias, of course, they're all okay. But having darkness as your closest friend, feeling like dashing your enemy's baby's heads against the rocks, the Lord failing in his promises and rejecting us forever? No. Just no. We don't dare go there. We'll take our scriptures sanitized. Thank you very much. But the upshot of being selective in our scriptures is that when we do brave worship in our Asaph moments, as all of us have to do at some stage, we sit at the edge We're on the margins. We're fearful. We're embarrassed. We don't want to engage among the general fervor of those real believers who don't do rants and tears and doubts and brokenness. Or maybe we'll simply decide, you know, I can't face church at all. All these shiny, happy people. And then there's me. I wouldn't want to spoil the congregational image. The Psalms are known as Israel's hymn book, but as well as songs and musical directions, they're also prayers and liturgies and personal testimonies and elaborate responses for high and holy days, but also good old belters for those community celebrations and feasts. It's not so much hymns ancient and modern as now that's what I call the most complete worship resource ever then. It's thought that the Psalms were compiled and brought together and edited sometime during or after the exile in around the 6th century BC as conquest and captivity raised fundamental questions about God and his character and his capabilities, much like our own global crises today. And yes, sometimes the Psalmists are praising God But at other times, they're screaming at him for not showing up. They're pointing the finger at him for failing to deliver. They're pleading with him to forgive them. They're vehemently protesting. They're yelling and roaring and weeping and grieving. And I was surprised to discover that over a third of the Psalms, that's about 59 or so, are characterized as laments. That's an awful lot. John Calvin once wrote, the Psalms is an anatomy of all parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. I think that what that means is that all human life is here. Psalms is worship at 3 a.m. Psalms is theology in the raw. And so it's good to approach the psalms as a kind of compilation, allowing the different types of psalm to kind of feed off and bounce off and dialogue with one another 
rather than simply picking the ones we like and concentrating solely on them. Nor should we separate the Psalms from the big story of Scripture and treat them simply as kind of service fillers. For as Jesus himself said, everything that was written about me in the law of Moses, the Psalms and the prophets must be fulfilled. These are important scriptures. And personal and intimate as the Psalms undoubtedly are, they were brought together for public worship to teach and transform us corporately. So let's see what Psalm 77 has to say to us as a body tonight about worship, about prayer, about fellowship and care, about vulnerability and authenticity. And the first thing we learn is that we're to be honest with God, being honest with God. We don't know the precise context that Asaph was writing this psalm in, but it's abundantly clear that he's in utter turmoil. Verses 1, I cried out to the Lord for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands. I would not be comforted. Asaph's doing what every good believer is meant to do. He's praying. He's crying out repeatedly to God to help him. He still believes, at least for now, that God might possibly hear him. We're told that he's seeking God urgently. He's stretching out untiring hands. He's refusing to take no for an answer. He's kind of straining desperately towards God, like someone who's stuck in sinking sand. But hard as Asaph prays, it doesn't do him any good, for God doesn't appear to hear his prayer. Or if he has, it makes no tangible difference. I would not be comforted, as Asaph bluntly puts it. He's doing everything he should, yet God does not deliver. And God does not come through for him. So since crying out to God provides no comfort and there's no sense of hope in the present, he starts looking back instead. He tries to dredge up happier memories, times when he felt truly blessed. But again, this seems to get him nowhere. In fact, the more he dwells on his past happiness, the worse he starts to feel. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about all the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. He's absolutely wrecked, and yet still he has no peace. He actually says it's as if God's sticking his fingers in his eyeballs, forcing his eyelids open so he can't even close his eyes and rest. That's a particularly graphic and sadistic image. He's meditating, he's thinking, he's remembering. His mind is clearly whirling until it comes to a point where he can't even say what he's feeling. He's too troubled to even speak. He's reduced to groans that words cannot express. And all of this leads him to some truly terrifying questions, verses 7 to 9. My heart meditated and my spirit asked, 
Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has he forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? And what's interesting here is that the ideas here come straight from Exodus. Exodus chapter 34, when God appeared before Moses on Mount Sinai, and he declared to him that he was the Lord, he is the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And then God went on to establish his covenant with Israel, giving them a complete new identity as his chosen people. So us are actually questioning the very heart and core, the foundations of the faith here, in terms that are nearly verging on blasphemy. And it's only when we get to verse 10 that the darkness seems to lift, because what Asaph starts to do is to focus on God's mighty acts. Then I thought, to this I will appeal, the years when the Most High stretched out his hand. I will remember the deeds of the Lord, your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. He eases his distress by focusing not on himself and his own circumstances, but on God and all God's attributes, God's holiness, God's power, God's uniqueness, all the times God has saved his people in the past. I will remember not my songs, but your miracles, your works, your mighty deeds. And slowly but surely, we see his focus starting to shift. Is there enough evidence? Is there enough corporate testimony to convince him that God is still in control? That God has indeed come through for his people so that he might after all dare to believe, God, you did it for them, you can do it for me. And so Asaph dares to say, to sing perhaps, despite his circumstances and doubtless through tears, your ways, God, are holy after all. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You do display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you have redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. And hey, you know what? That includes me. And the seminal saving event of God to which Asaph appeals was, of course, the Exodus, verses 16 to 20. The waters saw you, O God, the waters saw you and writhed, the very depths were convulsed, the clouds poured down water, the heavens resounded with thunder, your arrows flashed back and forth, your lightning lit up the world, the earth trembled and quaked. But he ends with a peaceful image. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footsteps were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And it's with this picture of, of traveling forward, of movement with the Lord out of the chaos and turmoil that Asaph's lament ends. It would be great to say that Asaph's story has a happy ending. 
that all his questions and doubts were instantaneously resolved, that he was completely emotionally healed, and that he responded in joyous thanksgiving and praise, as in fact many other psalms do when the person started in distress. But this psalm simply ends abruptly, with God leading his people out of the Red Sea and towards the Promised Land. Perhaps Asaph found this image of God, the Good Shepherd, really reassuring. I know it speaks to me. Or perhaps he just crashed out because he was exhausted with emotion. But what is clear is that something's going on. Something shifted in his thinking. He's no longer stationary, trapped and defeated, but instead he's embarking on a whole new spiritual journey. He's starting to discover who God is all over again. And of course, his recent painful experience still impacts him, but it's no longer shaping all his thinking about God. He's starting to move on. And there's something else that has happened. I don't know if you noticed. Almost imperceptibly, as he started thinking how God has dealt with his people Israel in the past, his own perspective has shifted. At the beginning of this psalm, you see, it's all about himself. I cried out, I sought the Lord, I stretched out my hands, I remembered, I groaned, I thought, I was troubled. In his misery, he's become completely self-preoccupied. But now, do you notice the difference? He's starting to speak about we, not me, about ours, not mine. What God is as great as our God, he now cries. He started to count himself among the people of God, to see himself as the direct descendant of Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Aaron and all the rest of them. It's not that his problems, whatever they were, have all been sorted. It's not that his grief and distress is gone. Of course, it can't be. But he started to identify himself with God's people. He's repositioned himself in the community of faith. He's part and parcel of this big shared story. He's no longer on this challenging journey on his own. So that's the story of Asaph and how he went through a time of very real distress and difficulty and how he worked through it by being honest with God by intentionally focusing not on himself, but on God and God's big story, and by clinging on to community. But what's the takeaway for us tonight in Orangefield? Three words came into my mind. Permission, sensitivity, and protest. Permission. I think the obvious lesson that we learn from laments like Asaph's, along with many other Psalms and Job and Lamentations and chunks of Jeremiah and many other bits of scripture, is that God gives us permission. He gives us permission to lament. He gives us permission to say exactly what we think and how we feel. No holds barred and no pretense. It's okay for us not to be okay, says God, in other words. Well, it's, it's not okay that we're not okay, but you kind of get my drift. 
It's okay for us to say to God, things aren't working. Things don't make sense. The world is broken. There's just no justice. It's all a mess. It's okay for us to say to God, it feels like you're not there. You're not listening. You're not responding. Why don't you do your job, God, and do something? It's okay for us to say to God, I'm not even sure just now that you are for me. In fact, I'm not convinced that you're there at all, quite frankly. It's okay for us to say to God exactly what we need to say. For after all, he already knows it anyway. Before a word is on my lips, you know it, O Lord. That's another psalm, by the way. How can we be so sure that it's okay not to be okay? Because of God's word. Because God's word, the scripture, is so chock full of of God's people going through questions and doubting and dialoguing and, and debating and struggling and even wrestling with God like Jacob did. As Paul writes, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and admonishing, etc., 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 even the less edifying bits. So you know what blew my mind as I started thinking about this? Here's God, the almighty God, and he permits within his own God-breathed, inspired word all kinds of misconceptions and accusations made against him. He permits the accusation that he doesn't care, that he does nothing, that he isn't good, that he doesn't love us, that he's incompetent, that he's impotent, that he doesn't exist, simply to show us that it's okay for us at times to feel like this. And it just struck me how how generous, how amazingly gracious our God is. So we can see this in the scriptures. And above all, we can see that it's okay not to be okay from the example of Jesus, who on the cross was subject to the greatest trauma and faith crisis that anyone could ever face, and who himself cried out using the words of another lament, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If Jesus himself felt abandoned and forsaken and and cried out to God in his distress and took God to task, then surely it's also okay for us. Of course, we're not like Asaph, and we have the advantage of living on the other side of the cross. We have definite proof, unlike Asaph, that God is for us and not against us. How? Because God has demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were still his enemies, not even doing anything good, while we were still way, way, way off, Jesus died for us. And that means that we can come to God with complete and utter confidence. Not because we deserve it, for goodness sake, we don't, but simply because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. The letter to the Hebrews says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of God with confidence, with boldness, with frankness, 
so that we might find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. I wonder if we can really get this on board. We can come in safety to Jesus with all our baggage, all our hurts, all our doubts, even when we can't face anybody else. Because Jesus, more than anyone, knows exactly how we feel. For after all, he's defined himself in his own word as a man of sorrows, a man acquainted with every human grief. So we have permission. It's okay. God wants the real you and me, not some kind of plaster saint. But lament can't stop with the individual. Lament is also something for the whole community to engage in as we're called to mourn with those who mourn as well as rejoicing with those who rejoice, to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And that means making ourselves vulnerable and receiving ministry from one another, which can be quite an ask. But it also means having people set aside, people who've gone through the other side of lament, who are willing to sit and listen and simply be God's presence to us when we go through those difficult times. Orangefield is a busy, thriving church, and that's great. But sometimes, in all the excitement and with all the crowds, dare I say it, we could perhaps get a bit too preoccupied with ourselves and our activities, a bit too busy to notice people on the edges. In 2 Peter, we're told that God, the Father of all compassion and the God of all comfort, comforts us in all our troubles so that we can go on and comfort others with the comfort we ourselves have received. So amidst our busyness and the excitement and our fellowship, let's not forget to look round and, and notice others, to be sensitive to the Spirit telling us, look, go and talk to that person, go and sit with them, ask how things are going. A simple recognition that we're not all going to be firing on all cylinders all of the time. A plea for sensitivity. And then finally, the word that came to me was protest. You see, we can lament as a church, but we can't confine lament to the four walls of this building. We can see individuals suffering, but we can't see the wrong in the world outside and just ignore it. We have to bring it to God and pray about it. And we can't just call it out to God and then just sit back and do nothing. We have to be ready to be the answer to our own prayers. The logic of lament, it, it drives us to call out evil and injustice and suffering and abuse. It calls us to demand action, to engage in legitimate protest, to declare with ever-increasing boldness that this just isn't the way that God intends the world to be, and to examine ourselves and our own attitudes and our own lifestyle choices accordingly. Lament inevitably leads us into action, be it addressing inequality or poverty or climate change or the unequal distribution of resources or the treatment of asylum seekers and refugees or the current cost of living crisis. Lament reminds us that we're meant to be at the forefront, not the back of local and global social justice. We're the comforted, comfortable people of God 
and we're called to comfort others. That's how God's economy works. So hopefully tonight we've learned that psalms like this psalm of Asaph's really matter, along with all the other biblical laments. In fact, we neglect the lament bits in the Bible at our peril. Lament is permissible, and I would say that lament is necessary. Emphasizing lament in appropriate balance with praise and celebration, of course. You know what? It might bring a whole new depth to our worship, our prayer, the way we care and fellowship with one another, and also our witness. Because the world out there, it's desperately in need of real Christians who aren't afraid to tell it like it is. Shall we pray together? Father, whatever way we've come to you tonight, whatever our circumstances are, however we feel about you at the minute, may we leave tonight a little more conscious, a little more convinced, a little more comforted, knowing that you are the Lord, a gracious and compassionate God, a God who is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And where we're struggling to believe or to feel this, then help us to do what Asaph did. Help us rehearse this truth together with others who are on the same journey until it makes sense to us once again. Father, help us again to see you as you actually are. And Father, where life for us is happy and blessed and everything's going great, Help us to remember that this is only by your grace and help us to be grateful and help us to be humble. And as we rightly rejoice, help us also to be aware of those who are mourning and those who are struggling. Father, in all our interactions and in all our busyness, may we never deter others from your presence. And Father, you've called us to be your people for a purpose, to share together in your big story, the story of the scriptures, the reason for Jesus, to participate with you in making all things new. So Father, give us boldness and give us confidence, give us frankness, rouse us from our apathy and send us out to speak truth, to love mercy and to act justly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.